Really quick, there's this really cool thing I like to do, and it's, I, you know, it's informative. I don't know how necessary it is uh, for class. C.S. Lewis actually talks about it. He talks about how, why isn't this turning? Yes. Why isn't this, why isn't this turning? Why, why, why is, why is God, how is God, how is God able to be, if God is in the flesh, in Christ, how is he able to be on earth and yet still in heaven? And that's a good question. <clears throat> right? I mean, because you're going to be like, oh, what is like, the Trinity just ceased to become a bi-entity? You know? And Jesus is like, see you guys, we'll be back in 33 years. You know? <clears throat> and he just kind of like, woo, down to earth, live for 33 years, and then woo, back up to heaven. How does it happen that God is both in heaven, still subsisting in a trinity, and also on earth as Jesus Christ? This is my feeble, well, it's, it's Lewis's feeble attempt. Remember, this is talking about some serious stuff here. This is not just your run-of-the-mill sort of question. So... Here we go. <clears throat> Give me first dimension object. Actually, you know what? Let's do the other. Give me a third dimension object. Cube. Cube, thank you. I love that, because I'm always waiting for somebody who's going to be like a pyramid. Damn, I don't know how to draw it. <laughs> right? <clears throat> how about that? That ain't no stick figure. <laughs> okay? And what we're going to call this guy is Cube Man. Okay? Cube Man is a third dimensional object. Now, <clears throat> Cube Man, right, Cube Man, again, we're, we're talking about geometry stuff here. Now. So, so, so if Q-Man were to become a second dimension object, what would he be? Good. He becomes a square. Now, is Q-Man still a square? I mean, is, Q, is Square Man still a Q? No. No. If the third dimension, I'm just, this is hypothetical. If the third dimension could move to the second dimension, how would cube man appear? Square. But would he still be a cube? Yeah. Sure, you just wouldn't see it. Because people in the second dimension can't see third dimensional objects. So square man is sitting, he's like, you guys, you're never going to believe this. I'm a cube. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, there is so much more to your life. You can have all these other sides and space in between you and a whole bunch of squares and, and you become a cube. You are actually more than a square. <laughs> You're more than a square. You're a cube. All the people in second dimension tell square man he's an idiot. There's no such thing as a cube. So he says, you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the first dimension. So how does he appear? A line. A line. 
Okay? Now, Lime Man, who's actually Cube Man, but he's disguised because he's in the first dimension. Is he still a cube? In his substance, is he a cube? Yes, he's a cube. In his accidents, how he appears, he is a what? Lime. And he's telling all the other lines, right? There's lines all around, and they're like, dude, what are you talking about? Man, let me hear you what, speak some more on that. This is amazing, right? And he's saying, I'm telling you guys that there is such a thing as a square. It's four lines put together. And you're actually, all of you, you might be circles. You might be pyramids. You might be cubes. You might be spheres. What's sphere? It's a big ball. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right? This is awesome. And everybody's like, Lion Man, or now they're calling him Cube Man. They're like, Cube Man, tell us more about the third dimension. Because that's where you come from. Now, here's the question. Is the first dimension in the second dimension? <clears throat> yeah. Right? There's just more of it. Now you get more lines. Is the first and the second dimension in the third dimension? Yeah. So the third dimension actually encapsulates these two dimensions. So while he is a cube, he is also a square and he is also a line. But he's still a cube in the third dimension. But the people in the second and the first just can't see it. So now we take this and apply it to God. God is in the God dimension. I don't know what the God dimension looks like. You know, usually I just do this. The infinity sign, right? <clears throat> Are all other dimensions encapsulated in the God dimension? Yeah. If God created all dimensions, he stands outside of them, holding them all in check. Now again, we're, we're presupposing you believe in God and, and all that whole thing. So just bear with me. So God is holding all the dimensions together. Is it possible for him to remain God in the God dimension, but appear into the third dimension? Yeah, but how would he have to do it? Huh? Yes, something No. Just as Cuban. Now, if you look at these two dimensions, it looks like he leaves something behind. But his substance is still cute. So it Yeah, just his appearance changes. Now, we can't see, because here's the thing. Line man can't understand square man, square man can't understand cube man. But cube can understand square and line. So, if line, square, and cube can't understand God, God can understand cube, square, and line. Because he encapsulates all the dimensions. So, in order for him to make himself visible in the third dimension, which is the dimension we live in, how would he have to appear? Hmm? Well, I mean, he couldn't know, just as a three-dimensional object. Okay? I just want to say, how would he have to appear? He could, could, could God have come as a dog? Yeah, I mean, he could have, wouldn't have done much good. Could God have become a rock? Yes, God could have become whatever he wanted to be. But he decided to become human so he could communicate to us. But as God enters into the third dimension and becomes man, is he still capable of being God? Has he left the God dimension? No. His substance has not. 
Now, he is appearing as a three-dimensional object. Jesus' human nature did, in fact, live 33 years and then die. And then rose again. So this is how we can say that God, not only is he still triune and still with the Father, and that's why he says, you guys, again, look to the scriptures. The reason I'm telling you guys this stuff, because I'm, I'm hoping you start to see, that's why you should read your Bibles. The more you read the scriptures, the more you will see that logic and what Jesus said line up. So when Jesus says the Father and I are one, is he speaking truly? Yes. Sure. How? God bless you. Right, right, but it, it, are him and the Father one? How? They're still the same substance. Good, right? So the divine person is still God, and he is one with the Father. But then Jesus also says, and people are like, contradiction! <laughs> contradiction! He says, the Father is greater than I. What does he mean? Is that true? Uh, no. Is God, it is, when he says, the Father is greater than I, is that a true statement? No. Make a distinction. How is the Father greater than the Son? It's begotten the same substance from all eternity. How is the human being of Jesus Christ Lesser than the Father. He's human. He's human. But this time, make him the substance, though. That's what we're going to get into. <clears throat> okay. So he has a human nature and a divine nature. This is where we're going to talk about the hypostatic union. Okay. So what is hypostatic union? I hate this, but it works really well. Two what's, one who. If you ask Jesus Christ if you're sitting in this right now. And, you know, we got back to Israel, and he was walking around proclaiming the, the kingdom of God, and we said to you, we said to him, "What are you?" What would he say? So the two right, right. But what would he say if I said, what are you? I am what? I am God and man. I am human and divine. If I said to Jesus, who are you? He would say what? I am God. The nature and the person are two very different things. <clears throat> okay? Two natures, one person. And they don't like intermingle. Okay? They are both separate and complete. And they are kind of, if you would have, you have to say this, they are governed by the divine person. Now this makes things really, really cool. Very confusing, <laughs> but really cool. So if you said to Jesus, Okay? Theoretically, he's here pre-death. He's ministering to Bismarck. <clears throat> okay? We say, Jesus, move that bag. What are his options? Say no. Well, yeah, he could say no. <laughs> but if he's going to move it, what are his options? Think human and... Yeah, he can physically move it, or... He could just move it. One is using his human nature. He literally has to go up like all of us humans and say, here I go to work, right? Or he can just kind of walk by it and we'll rise and just walk beside him. 
float right beside him. Because in his divine nature, he can do things above nature. He can't do things above nature in his human nature. That's why every time the Son of God does something, he has to freely choose to choose humanity. This shows you the utter humiliation, or the utter humility of the Son of God. Now, i got to be honest. If I was Jesus, and I'm not, and there's reasons for that, but if I was, and people were beating the crap out of me during the crucifixion, do you realize at any time, he even says this. He says this. They say to him, he, they, they, they say, that, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, he's going to die, he's going he's gonna to go to the cross, he's going to be killed, he's going to be murdered. And they're all like, God forbid that happens. He's like, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and legions of angels will rescue me? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Do you realize during the crucifixion at any point, I mean, I, again, this is stuff I love meditating on, you know, because I love violence. <clears throat> but he, I mean, he could have, you know, like a guy, he falls from the way to the cross, he's on the ground, a guy comes up to him and just bam. You know, and he's like bleeding, and he looks up. Literally, he could have picked that guy up and like smashed him into the ground. He could have made everybody simply cease to exist around him. He could have buried the cross through the chest of Pontius Pilate if he wanted to. All in his divine nature. But he has to, in humility and in obedience to the Father, shut down the divine nature and take on the entire passion with only his humanity. This is incredible stuff. So if I ask you a question, okay? Let's say, um, let's say, let me think here. I had some pretty simple questions, right? Can Jesus love? Yes. Yes. Can Jesus suffer? Yes. Yes. How does Jesus suffer? In his human nature. Can Jesus die? Yes. Can God die? Yes. In his human nature. This is fun stuff. I love the hypostatic union, you guys. It's just a crazy concept. So, we're going to get into a little bit more into that, but the first reason for the incarnation, okay? Incarnation. Incarnate. Means what? In meat. <laughs> in flesh. God becomes man in the incarnation. Number one, the Word became flesh in order to save us by reconciling us with God. <clears throat> the Word became flesh in order to save us by reconciling us with God. Underneath that, I want you to put this. <clears throat> If we needed to be reconciled with God, something went wrong. If we needed to be reconciled with God, something went wrong. I mean, the single reason Jesus came was to die. You know, if you think about it, all of us are born to live. But Jesus was born to die. <laughs> 
And he said that he was coming to free us from sin. He was coming, in a sense, to pay a debt. You know, and, and Lewis talks about this in a little bit in the atonement when he talks about... <clears throat> Remember the guy that has the unfair advantage? Remember that reading? Remember the, the one guy's drowning? And he reads, the other guy's on the shore. He's like, give me your hand. He's like, no, you have an unfair advantage. <laughs> like, I'm not grabbing your hand, right? But the only one that can help the guy that's drowning is what? Somebody who is not drowning. If you got two guys drowning, they can't really help each other, which is what all of humanity is. We're all, as G.K. Chesterton said, we're all sick and we're all in the same boat. And we're all perishing. And none of us can help us. We need somebody who has never we need somebody to experience what we experience without ever sinning. They can help us. Right? If somebody comes and pays your debt, it means that they have something more than you do. What does Jesus have more than we do? Yeah, he's caught. And he doesn't have sin. And here's the thing. If we are the ones that created the thing that needed to be reconciled, we're the ones that created the debt. And the debt is against God. It is a finite being creating a debt against an infinite being, which makes the debt infinite. Who's the only one that can pay that debt? The infinite being. God himself is the only one that can fix the debt because the debt is infinite. That was how big the screw-up was that humanity made. When we sin against God, we create an infinite debt. And that puts us in a really, really bad place. Because there's nothing we can do about it. How many of you, like, <clears throat> you don't have to raise your hands, kind of more of a rhetorical question. Because otherwise you'd be kind of, like, revealing your consciences. How many of you have that thing where you're like, man, I just wish I could get rid of this? Man, I just, like, I try so hard to not do this, but I do it all the time. If you go in, if you know, if you're using the sacrament of confession, it's that sin that you bring again and again and again and again, right? The point is, what God wants to convey to us is that we can't do it. We can't fix the problem. He has to. And that's the first thing he wants to show us. Let me fix it. In our lives, man, people take over and they try to do their own thing so much. And they try to provide for themselves so much. And they try to take control so much. You know, like when you make a mistake, I remember this as a little kid. You remember this? Like you would lie about it and you're like, frick, I just made it worse. Now I got to think of something else to add on to that line. And then you add on to that line. And then you're like, I just made it even more worse. Now I got it. And you just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Because you're trying to control. Every time human beings try to take control, try to play God, things fall apart. And Christ is trying to teach us right away, let me help you. And he does it by healing all these people, by forgiving sins, and then if we still won't trust him, he says, even at one part he says, if, 
If you don't believe me, just believe my works for crying out loud. Because the Pharisees are like, give us a sign. And Jesus is showing them so many signs. And he's like, who do you think you are? You claim to be the son of God. And he's like, you may not believe me. You may not trust me. But for crying out loud, look at what I'm doing. And they still don't believe him. And so what is his last ditch effort? I'm going to die for them. I'm going to let, I am going to come and I am going to do nothing but love them. And I'm going to let them kill me. Because that is the only way that I will be able to communicate my life to them. I have to receive the entire weight of what humanity is capable of. In the passion, if you look in the passion, every single wicked thing that humanity can do is thrown at Jesus Christ. Everything. Humanity threw everything. And he allowed it. Because he had to experience everything in order to be the merciful high priest that we need him to be to intercede for us and to reconcile things for us. He had to experience, the fathers of the church say what he didn't experience, what he didn't take on, he didn't redeem. That means that he had to take on everything in order to redeem everything. To take on, to, he had to pay the debt in full, and the only way to pay the debt in full was to take it all. He couldn't leave anything. These things, as we go through these four, these four reasons for the incarnation, they should inspire your heart to expand in gratitude for what this man has done. You think of all the selfishness that's in the world. I'm selfish. You're selfish. We're, we're arrogant, egotistical, self-centered, entitled. Give me some other. <laughs> give me some other adjectives. I mean, we are really. If we sit back, like we are just bad people. And this guy came and didn't do anything wrong. So I love that line, man. A good thief. They're hanging there. Jesus is. You know, they, they, again, according to the Shroud of Turin, they said, his, the, I think it's the right side of his face. It was what, The Shroud even captures the swollenness of the face. And remember, what causes swelling? I think it's blood, right? <laughs> blood causes swelling. And that, in fact, all the blood is out of his body because he bled to death, more or less, because of all the wounds. So that means that this is now deflated. And they said it, when it was fully, like, bruised, you said you, you couldn't even recognize the right side of his face. That's how badly he was beaten. So he's hanging there, pierced, right through his hands, through his feet. He's scourged. He's bleeding. Like, you guys, have, I, I just cut my finger on a paper, and, like, it just wouldn't stop bleeding. Imagine, like, a chunk of flesh ripped out of you. And the amount, I mean, any of you that do medicine stuff, I mean, or you've had deep cuts, you know what they bleed like. <clears throat> and he's got the, I mean, he's just saturated in blood and beaten and almost to the point where he's unrecognizable. And the one, the bad thief is like, do something about this. If you're God, get us down. Take us down. And the good thief looks over. This is so, he's so powerful. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. We're justified in what we're suffering. You know, we committed crimes. We did something evil. We deserve this. But this guy hasn't done anything. I once had a meditation in a retreat 
and I was walking with Jesus, and I was, <clears throat> the meditation was I was to pray with Simon of Cyrene, and I was supposed to put myself in the place of Simon of Cyrene. So like I was carrying the cross with Jesus. I was like just face to face with him. It's where the imagination is really powerful. And I looked at him, and he was, you know, the tears were mixing with blood as he was, as he was walking. And I was like, what did you do? What did you do? And, and it was this beautiful moment. He's just like, he's like, I, I just loved him. I just loved him. You know, I mean, the guy, you can't find a bad bone in that man's body. And yet they killed him. And he received it on behalf of us. Okay? All right. Just really quick, uh, going back to the, uh, the hypostatic union, just because you remember in order for him to redeem everything, he has to be totally human and also totally divine. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 464. You don't have to write this whole thing down, but you should know uh, Catechism 464. It says, The unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man. Nor does it mean that he is a mixture of divine and human. He became truly human while remaining truly God. He is true God and true man. Catechism number 464. Okay? We have to be very clear about this. There's been many, many heresies in the early church. I just want to cover one really quick because it's the most famous. You know, everybody says, it's kind of funny, everybody's like, oh, the Catholic Church is like, it's at its worst. It's almost, it's like it's going to disappear from the face of the earth and it's in so much trouble. Like, you guys, we don't know what trouble is. You look at the Reformation, that was crippling to the church. Even before that, the single most dangerous and crippling heresy, I think, I think this is fair to say, is Arianism. Arianism is by a, a man, a heretic. He was a Catholic bishop that kind of broke away and did his own thing. His name was Arius. A-R-I-U-S. Arius basically said, he based everything. Remember when it says, the father, the father, the father, the father is greater than I. Remember when I said that? Arius used his entire theology, his entire Christology, his understanding of Jesus Christ, to look at that statement. The father is greater than I. He said, explain that to me. Now remember, this is before the understanding of the hypostatic union. All these, this is stuff that was way back when, right? He says, explain that to me. He said, God alone possesses divine attributes. To share them with anyone would render God less divine. This is just what he said. He was a strict monotheist. God is one. There is no room for a trinity. Everything besides God is created and temporal. If Jesus Christ was anything, he was a created superman. He was God's son, fine, but he was created. He was endowed with miraculous healing powers, fine, but he was created. He is not God. And this is, you guys, this heresy literally brought the church to her knees. This is in the year, in the, around the, year, the fourth century. Almost destroyed the entire Catholic church. It got so out of control. And then St. Basil, <clears throat> the great, one of the Cappadocian fathers, got together as two buddies, Gregory Nazianzus and, Gre and uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. 
And they started thinking. And they called the Council of Nicaea. <clears throat> Council of Nicaea was in 325. And it was when they said, we are going to deal once and for all with Arianism because it is out of flipping control. They bring Arius in. Arius testifies before the entire council with his whole theology. Favorite story of the Council of Nicaea. This is, I mean, this is what you got to remember. This is how passionate people were for the gospel. St. Nicholas of Antioch. You know jolly old St. Nick? This is him. Jolly old St. Nick wasn't so jolly that day. In a rage as he heard Arius spouting off his theology, saying that Christ was created, was not God, literally charged him and started to beat the hell out of him. Got on top of him and started just, but this is a bishop. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> just boom, boom, boom. They pull him off. They like pull, you know, the council has to take him like a recession for a little bit. They pull him away. Arius is, you know, taken care of. Nicholas is kicked out of the council. Later on, tradition holds that they were, the bishops were meeting. Arius was out, you know, and the bishops were meeting, trying to decide what to do. The Blessed Virgin Mary appeared and said, Nicholas was right. <laughs> I love stuff like that. Whether that happened or not, I don't know, but I love stuff like that. Eventually, Nicholas was brought back into the council. Arius was condemned as a heretic. But Arianism kept going. But the church at that point said, define the hypostatic union and use this word that I asked you on the quiz. It's kind of a funny word. Homoousios, right? <clears throat> Which means same substance. So in the creed, when we say that the Father and the Son are of the same substance, you say that on Sunday. You gotta, you guys, you gotta real, realize too, when you say the creed on Sunday, people died for that. People put their entire lives on the line for that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years were dedicated to make sure the Nicene Creed was intact and held the deposit of faith. You know, I think so many people who are in church today, we just kind of say the words of the creed. We don't think about all that history that goes behind. This is big stuff. And so they, they define doctrinally and dogmatically that Jesus Christ is indeed God and he is indeed man. There is no mingling of the two. They both exist, exist separately. Two natures, they are governed by the one person. So, the question then, this is just a real deep theological question I don't expect you to know. Does Jesus Christ have a human soul? Huh? You say yes. Who agrees with me? <laughs> Raise your hands if you agree that yes, he has a human soul. You would be correct. <clears throat> he does have a human soul. Aristotle calls the soul the animating principle of the body. The problem is, is in Jesus, what is the animating principle of the body? The divine nature. Or I mean the divine person, sorry. The divine person is animating the human nature. So what about this soul? Well, the human soul is dormant. It's run by the divine person. Because in a human being, the person and the, the soul are interchangeable. Right? The person, every soul influences. This is really important. Gosh, I, you guys, there's so freaking much to talk about. Like, I was supposed to be through these four already. <clears throat> I just get on tangents sometimes. The soul, okay? The soul is the animating principle of the body. So does a plant have a soul? Yes. It's called the vegetative soul. Does an animal have a soul? 
Yes, it's called an animal soul. <laughs> Does a human have a soul? Yes, it is called a rational soul. Do rocks have souls? No, there's no animation, okay? So there's these levels of solality. I made that up. Solality. <clears throat> Each soul has a different, but the point is, is that for anything to live, it needs a soul. Now why do we say dogs don't go to heaven, or plants, like your favorite plant, your favorite flower, like I'll see you in heaven, plant you in a little coffin? Okay. Why, you know, like, but we, you laugh, but we do that with dogs. Holy crap, do they do crazy stuff with dogs. I just, I know a person that runs like a, it's like a dog pound. No, not a pound. Where do they stay? A kennel, a dog kennel. And they actually, they will stuff your dog for you. Okay. They will also, it's amazing. And they do this with humans too. It's not just dogs. They will, they will. Burn your dog, they will cook him down, and, and cremate him, and then they will pack the, the black stuff, ashes, <laughs> they'll pack the ashes into an actual stone. And you can wear it in a ring. So you can carry Fido all day, all around with you forever. <laughs> the newest one, you guys, I heard that is so asininely ridiculous. You ready for this? Okay. <clears throat> So, by the way, the, the church is against this. You cremate your dad, okay, or your grandpa or your uncle. Uncle was a big hunter, okay? They now have, you can make a bullet, and in the tip of the bullet are ashes from your uncle. And at his funeral, you can shoot him into the air. One last hunt, Uncle Charlie. Wouldn't that suck if you only had one bullet and you took Charlie hunting one last time and you missed the deer, you know? <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, they, they shoot these things off. I remember I was, it was up in Minot. I was going golfing. I was going golfing out at the country club there. As we're pulling up, I'm like, hey, what are those guys like having a prayer service? My brother and I, were, my brother's a priest, in case you guys didn't know that. So we're like driving together. We had Caddyshack, you know that, um, you know, that's like, we were playing that with our goofy outfits on. We always, anyway. So we're driving in, like having that blur, and I'm like, dude, turn that down. I think they're having like a prayer service or something by this big tree. And all of a sudden, they, somebody just like, and there's ashes all over the golf course. And I went up to the guy, and I'm like, excuse me, sir, there's a dead body out on your golf course. And he's like, what? I'm like, oh, yeah, somebody just dropped off a dead body. Uh, it's by the tree on 18. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, they just like took the cremains, because that's what you call them, the cremains, and dumped them out on your tree. And he's like, oh, what's the big deal? I'm like, it's a dead body. He's like, well, hey, it's burned up. I'm like, so you telling me if my dad died and he was a skeleton and I just threw him out on the 18th green, there wouldn't be a big deal? <laughs> but like, yeah, like everybody's like, oh, yeah, what's the big deal? <clears throat> I mean, there's a sacredness to the body. I don't even know where I was going with that. It doesn't matter. We're having a good time learning. There we go. Number two. Number two. The word became flesh so that we might know God's love. 
Okay, I think I'm going to get through this and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be done. I'm going to, again, <clears throat> we need to understand the passion. The saints say over and over, if you want to be a saint, never stop meditating on the passion. Why? Because that's where God showed us how much he loved us. I want to take you through <clears throat> a quick... Uh, quick little understanding of the power of what happened, okay? <clears throat> Again, if you want to write this down, most important thing I want you to know are the four reasons, but whatever you want to write down, you go ahead and write down. <clears throat> so, when Jesus Christ, before he enters into, this, into his passion, what does he do? Praise. Good. What else does he do? He eats the Last Supper. In the scriptures, and I'm not assuming you guys know your scriptures too well because you haven't answered very many questions tonight, but in the scriptures, does Jesus ever suffer outside of the crucifixion? Yes. yes. Where? Looking upon the city of Israel. Well, he weeps. I'm talking like deep, painful suffering. Does he like battle with the devil or something? Yeah, he's tempted in the, in the desert. But where does this real suffering begin? The agony. the agony in the garden. That's where we see most excruciating pain in, in the Son of God. We see him weep. We see him, you know, get frustrated. We see him, but we don't see him in agonizing pain and suffering until he's at the agony in the garden. This is really, really important. <clears throat> really important. Why does the suffering begin there? Huh? Isn't he told what he has to do? Doesn't say that. <clears throat> what happened right before the agony in the garden? The Last Supper. Okay. What do we believe happened at the Last Supper? Institution. The institution of the Eucharist. What do we believe the Eucharist is? Jesus in the flesh, right? Only under the accent he appears. Again, remember the dimensions. The substance of the Eucharist. What its substance is, is God. What its accidents are, what it looks like, what it tastes like. It tastes like bread. It looks like bread. But its, its substance is God. He wanted to enter in. He gave us his flesh, correct? And when he gave him his total self to us, we gave our total self to him. The Eucharist is the one flesh union of God and man. They call it the consummation of heaven and earth. And in this consummation, now you, you know, keep your heads, keep your heads focused here. <clears throat> consummation. Where else does that happen? Marriage. Marriage. We call it the big act. My friend just references this as the big, right? The big act. So the consummation is when husband and wife come together in a one flesh union that is life giving. But in the one flesh union, the man receives all of the woman, and the woman receives all of the man, both figuratively and literally. Now again, think, just, <clears throat> and I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but this is, a pretty, this, is a, this is a pretty good attempt, I think. When Jesus enters into a one flesh union with humanity, what does he receive? Huh? All of our sins. All of our sins. In a sense, think about like a disease. 
You know, somebody is just sleeping around, sleeping around, sleeping around. Eventually, what happens? They get a disease because they're getting everything from the one they're sleeping with, <clears throat> including the not so good stuff. Right? They get all the pleasure, everything, woo -hoo! and all of a sudden, like crap. I got a problem. <clears throat> anyway, I was uh, underestimated a little bit. <clears throat> so. Crap, I got a problem. <clears throat> it says immediately after Jesus shares the Eucharistic feast, the first thing he does, right, or before this, he washes their feet. So he, what he says, is this beautiful line in John's Gospel. It says, knowing that all power in heaven and on earth was his. Knowing, no, knowing, knowing where he came from and where he was going. So did Jesus know exactly who he was, exactly what his mission was? Yes, he knew he was God. He knew he was going to die for humanity. What does he do at the moment when the full scale of his power is revealed to him? He kills everybody. No, it says that he took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, and he began to wash their feet. And why is that significant? Why is the washing of the feet significant? Shows humility, but how specifically? Washing of the feet was very, very, very common during the time of Jesus. Who did it? Slaves. <clears throat> That's why Peter, when Jesus comes to Peter, he's like, heck, you are not washing my feet. <laughs> this is getting, I got to love Peter. You're not washing my feet. And he's like, unless I wash your feet, you can't have life with me. And he's like, well, then wash my whole body. <laughs> you know, Peter's like, oh, he's all in or all out, man. I love that guy. <clears throat> but this is, he was so shocked. Peter was so shocked, like, you will not do that for me. I'm going to wash your feet. And then Jesus says, I have done this. You don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. And as I have done, so you must do. The greatest of you should be the least. And the strongest of you should be the servant. And I am going to show you that, not just by washing your feet, but you, you think this is crazy. <laughs> Wait until you see tomorrow. I honestly believe, some of this stuff I can't prove to you, some of this is just kind of meditations from myself, but I honestly believe when Peter, or when John is leaning on, he's, he's right up next to Jesus, you know? And everybody's like, oh, you know, John was a woman, John was gay, John was, you know, it's like, come on, man. Like, I've seen dudes, like, hug each other and hold each other on couches. <laughs> I'm like, really? That's kind of weird. They're like, we love each other, you know? And like, <clears throat> it's just like, it was just this, like, masculine friendship. They loved each other. They cared deeply about each other. And I'd be willing to bet that John, the only reason that John was at the foot of the cross and all the other apostles ran away, the only reason John was there is because Jesus leaned over to him and whispered to him and said, Tomorrow, when things get really crazy, you make sure you stay by my mother. And I would be willing to bet that the only reason that John is at the foot of the cross is because Mary is at the foot of the cross. And Jesus, he entrusts him, he entrusted John, his mother. And he did it the night before, and he said, you take care of her during this craziness. And as John is obedient to the call of the Lord, the Lord looks down on him and says, now that's your mom. That's your mother. And woman, behold your son. 
And after he tells them exactly what they need to do, what the objectivity of his truth is, which is service brings joy. Love and self-sacrifice bring peace and joy to humanity. They are what tip the scales of evil. Then he says, with his actions, now I'm going to prove it to you. Because you think all this service stuff and selfless sacrifice and all these things I talked about, you think that was all just fun and games? Now you're going to see it lived out. And from that point on, it says he was deeply distressed. <clears throat> now you could make the argument, well, he knew it was coming. You could also make the argument that all of human sin had just been communicated to him. And that's why when he goes to the garden, he's laying on the ground and he is sweating blood. This is an actual medical condition, I'm told by doctors. It's called hematidrosis. The capillaries in the skin break because there is so much stress on the human person. If you look up images of it, it's pretty horrific, actually. <clears throat> the other thing that that does is when capillaries break in the skin, it causes bruising. If you think about this, why is he sweating blood? He's sweating blood because there are three reasons. One, he is experiencing every sin as though he committed it. Remember, he has to feel the full weight of human pain. So he has to feel like what it's like to be a murderer. Now, he didn't commit the sin, but he has to feel what it's like. In order to be truly human, he has to feel what we go through. So he feels what it's like to be a murderer, a pedophile, a rapist, a murderer, a serial killer an abuser, an adulterer, a thief. He feels every single sin that has ever been committed by human nature. Because remember, what he doesn't take upon, he doesn't redeem. And as he's feeling that, he also feels the weight of all human sin being committed against him. Because why? He's God. And all sin, in the end, is directed against God. And on top of that, number three, he is feeling the weight of past, present, and future sin. All of it. Is there any wonder why the guy sweat blood? <clears throat> you, you talk about stress? You think you've suffered? I try to tell people this who are suffering. There is nobody who has suffered more than Jesus Christ. If he, is who he said, if he is who he says he is, there is nobody who has suffered more than him. And the worst type of suffering, you guys, what's the worst type of suffering? Psychological. Emotional. You know? I mean, physical suffering is, and you know, I don't want to say nothing, but, I mean, you look at the saints, man, when their hearts and their minds are in the right place, they could go through excruciating stuff. You want to read the most grotesque, gruesome martyr that martyrdom ever happened? Look up the North American martyrs. It's unbelievable what they went through. But their hearts and their minds are in the right place, and they're able to endure pain that you and I can't freaking fathom. So as he's sweating blood, as he's experiencing all this stuff, he's asking the Lord, he's saying, he's saying or he's asking the Father, Father, please let this cup pass from me. You want to know why? My guess is he asked three times. My guess, it says, he went, he asked, came back, his apostles were asleep. 
So he went back and he prayed again and asked again. <clears throat> Came back. His apostles were asleep. Went back a third time, prayed and asked again. You know why he asked three times? Because nobody was answering. Remember, the greatest weight of humanity, the greatest pain of humanity, is to feel the absence of God. And in his human nature, he had to experience that. Now, how that happened when you have a divine nature and a divine person, I have no idea. But it happened because it was enough for him to beg the Father not to go through with this. And again, he shows us, not my will, your will. So remember in the beginning we were talking about Adam and Eve. What did they do? God says, my will is that you have everything in creation. You just don't touch that tree. You don't try to decide what's right and wrong for yourselves. Just be obedient. And they say, screw you, and we're disobedient. We take. And now Christ, when he has the opportunity to take, he lets go. You know, the fathers of the church say that each hand was pinned to the cross. One hand for Adam's taking, one hand's for Eve's taking. Then in obedience, he repaid that debt. As he's suffering, as he finally says, yes, I will go. Father, you will not mind. If you notice in the scripture, in the, in, in the passion narratives, he never looks back after that. He never questions it. He never looks back. Now remember, <clears throat> this, a, yeah. What about like when he's like, why have you forsaken? We'll get to that. It's a good question. <clears throat> the very, the, remember the, with the hematidrosis or the strain of blood, remember I said the bruising? So like if I would punch you in the arm, right? It would hurt pretty bad because I'm a pretty strong, tough guy, right? <clears throat> I got a lot of muscle. But if I would punch you that hard and then a day later come back when you got a huge bruise because I'm so strong, that I left a big bruise, and I would punch that, does it hurt more or less? Way more. Imagine you're sweating blood from the stress, right? And most of the time they say medically it comes in the face, right? It can come on the body too, but it comes in the face. That's where the stress is. So his face is bruised already. He hasn't even been hit. He hasn't even been struck. His whole face is bruised. And as he comes up, you got to love this scene, man, when Peter, Peter's, you know, the guy, I will die for you. <laughs> I will die for you. And he says, die for me. You know, again, just to, like, to, to be in these conversations, you know, he says, die for Peter. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Did you even know who I am? He's like, I would never deny you. And sure enough, in the garden. And how does, why does Peter run away? First thing I like to, I, like two years ago, I finally figured this out. It was, well, I didn't figure it out. It was kind of like revealed to me. You know, you know the story of what happens with Peter in the garden? What does he do? Yeah, he freaks out and he cuts off the guy's ear. Now, last time I checked, like when you're in a fight with a sword, like the, nobody aims for the ear, right? Like, I'm going to get this guy, cut off his ear. What was he aiming for? His head. Peter wanted to kill him. He had totally missed everything that Jesus had taught. And that's why as soon as he hits him, right, and they grab him, and Jesus looks at him, he says, Peter... Put your sword away. Because those who fight by the sword will die by the sword. 
And that's what tradition holds. You know, Peter drops a sword and just takes off running. He's so afraid because all of a sudden he realizes all that stuff that he was talking about in the Last Supper, holy crap, he meant it. <laughs> it wasn't just like figurative, symbolic language. Like he really meant we are not going to fight and we're going to die. And when Peter realized that, he's like, I can't do that. That's, that's madness. So he runs away. But Peter is still in the garden. And Peter is in the courtyard. Don't underestimate Peter. Peter's in the courtyard. None of the other apostles were, except for John. At least Peter was there. He made it to the courtyard. That was dangerous in itself. They even started to recognize him. That's why he denied him. But as Jesus is walking, right, he gets beat. He gets, you know, beaten. Mel Gibson's Passion does a great job of this, showing the immense torture that happened. How, who of you have seen The Passion? If you haven't, got to watch it. And if I could suggest any time to watch it, I would watch it on Good Friday of this, of this Holy Week. <clears throat> watch it on the day that we remember what exactly happened. I watch it every year on Good Friday. I watch it alone. You probably want to watch it alone because you're going to weep. You're going to cry. And the first time I watched it, man, I cried so uncontrollably. It was like that. <laughs> it was like when I was at, uh, was at Les Miserables. I was just like, snot was poor. Like, I was shaking, man. I'm like, stop hitting him. Like, there's no need to hit him that much. And actually, the guy, they showed us a private viewing of it when I was in seminary at the North American College. And Mel Gibson didn't come, but his executive producer did come. I can't remember what his name was. But he was there, and we asked him. He had a question and answer afterwards. One of the guys asked, he said, was it really that bad? Was it really that bad? You know what he said? He said it was worse. And we depicted it as it should have been depicted and they were going to give us an X-rated movie because that's how violent it was. So we had to pull back on certain things on the violence and on the, on the, on the brutality because otherwise we couldn't have showed it. Nobody could have gone to it. <clears throat> said it was worse. And they said that doctors were on site to watch this whole thing. I don't know if you know this, but Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus, for the scourging at the pillar, they actually put metal plates in his back and then covered it with fake skin, right? So you have these plates to protect his real back and then they covered it with his fake skin and then they just let the guys unleash with real scourges. Well, what happened was is as he's getting hit and he falls, you know, and he gets down like this and he's laying, like he's like laying out. When he was laying out, one of the, one of the plates moved and he got hit by a scourge. <clears throat> And he said it was the most horrific pain he has ever felt in his life. Just one. And he said that then they took, they looked at the, 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 the wound, and then they modeled every wound on his body off after that one. So it actually was, it made it more real. Because they could actually show what a scourge, what a, what a wound would look like from him. It was brutal, you guys, brutal. So at the scourging at the pillar, so right, he's punched, he's whipped. They take... Uh, they take him and they say, you know, it's incredible. It says, imagine having your whole body bruised and then being whipped and poked with thorns and made to carry a huge, heavy cross. It would have been like falling asleep in the sun for two hours, getting horribly sunburned, and then having somebody take a whip and whip your back 39 times. I mean, just, just imagine the pain. So the scourging at the pillar, right? And before this, so they put him on trial. Then they make him stay all night. He's awake all night, dehydrated, beaten. Lacking sleep. 
You know, so he's already hurt. He comes up. Then they, you know, they, Pilate says, just have him scourged, have him crowned with thorns. We'll be done with this. You know, chastise him, but I'm not going to kill him. It says, according to the Shroud of Turin, scientists have determined that the scourge marks were made from a device that had three leather strips, which each had bone shards intertwined and a couple of lead balls at the end of it. So when the whips, when they whipped once, they actually hit him three times. On the body of the shroud, there are 120 lashes. Now remember, according to Jewish law, you could not be scourged more than 39 times. But Jesus is not under Jewish law. Jesus is now under Roman law. And they have no set numbers. Jesus' scourging was three times more severe than most people would have received. It is recorded that when people received the scourging afterwards, they were laying on the ground in a pool of blood with their rib cage and their spinal cord exposed. Just to give you an idea of the brutality of the Romans, you guys, they were torture machines. They knew how to inflict pain. <clears throat> also, according to the Shroud, there must have been two soldiers scourging him because of the direction of the lashes. One soldier, more compassionate to Jesus, because the scourge marks are mostly on the shoulders and the middle of the back. The other soldier made it much more painful, scourging him all over his body, especially on the back and the inside of the legs. Scourge marks on the chest, back, both sides of his legs, and parts of his arms. Again, it's important to remember the bruised body that Jesus already had from sweat and blood and the beatings from the Jewish guards. He has already been beaten severely, and now he receives a scourge. The scourge explains why Jesus only survived two to three hours on the cross. The loss of blood would have been extreme. It would have been severe. Not to mention, you've got to remember, right, what did they do after they scourged him? They wrapped him in a purple cloak, right? And then they put the crown of thorns on him. Well, what happens with that purple cloak? They bring him out. Pilate says, behold, the king of the Jews. And he said, we have no king but Caesar. They end up sending him to the cross. What do they do with that purple cloak? Rip it, Rip it off. So whatever blood has dried onto his skin, wants to take a, take a Band-Aid, you know, take a, take a severe thing that you have scabbed over, you put like gauze on, you got to rip that off. Again, imagine the pain. Then they clothe him in his original garment, the seamless garment. And they rip that off again when they strip him. The crown of thorns, the shroud indicates that the head had 15, there you go, 15 different puncture wounds on top, on the sides, and on the back. This indicates the crown was not really a crown, but more like a cap. If you ever get to Jerusalem, you can actually see the, the bush where they think they got this thing from. It was not just a crown. It was a chunk of, of a rose bush, and these thorns are like freaking that, man. They are huge. And what they did is they kind of made this ball and put it on his head and then kind of strapped it on. It's almost like a helmet, <clears throat> is what the shroud would indicate. They would have placed it on Jesus' head and then taken a heavy stick and beat it into his head. This is scriptural. It said that when the crown was on his head, that he received, they, they took reeds and beat him over the top with with the reeds. This is the only answer that scientists can come up with due to the severe puncture wounds in Jesus' head, according to the shroud. Also on the shroud, scientists have discovered that the right cheek was incredibly swollen. Both cheeks had been badly beaten, but the, but the right one especially. Remember the shroud is the picture of Jesus dead, so his blood is out of his body. You can literally imagine Jesus' face is being badly bruised, swollen. The right side of his face would have been almost unrecognizable. Shroud also shows on the front of his nose was badly scraped along with his chin and his lips. 
The knees are also badly scraped. The flesh would have been torn from his knees, which points to the fact that at some point he fell carrying the cross. There's also been dirt particles that have been found on the tip of the nose, indicating that our Lord's nose was forced into the ground, either by the cross or by one of the guards. On top of this, remember all night, he had been up, horribly dehydrated, suffered probably several concussions from the beatings, he was made fun of, spit upon, and has already lost an immeasurable amount of blood. This is why they have to get Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the cross. It's not because he needed help, because he was too weak. It's because he literally could not go on. He had no strength. So they, they get Simon to help him carry the cross. One of the reasons for this is because, this is really interesting, I didn't know this. One of the reasons that they got Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross is because if you were condemned to crucifixion by Roman law and you died in some other way, the soldiers in charge of you would receive the execution that you were supposed to be punished with. The Romans knew that the cross was the, most, was, was the greatest of torture devices, and they didn't want their worst prisoners not to make it to the cross. And so if the soldiers somehow killed them on the way to the cross, the soldiers were crucified. So the soldiers didn't want him to die until he was on the cross. The nails... According to the shroud, they were placed through the wrists. Help support, right, the weight of the body. Again, you guys who are studying medicine, you would know this better than I would. Um, but also, they would have partially severed the medial nerve. Or median nerve? Median. Median. The median nerve. I have had my median nerve hit. Because I, th I think I have. For whoever knows this, does the median nerve run from here all the way to your shoulder? Into your neck, kind of? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. <clears throat> when I had, remember when I busted my, my wrist? Mm -hmm. So when I went in to get, I actually had to get surgery because the Italians suck. <clears throat> and when I went in to get surgery from the Germans, thank God. Thank God for the Germans. <laughs> they're like, we have, to, we have to do a localized anesthetic. And I'm like, okay, cool. How do you do that? They're like, well, we're just going to hit, there's like a, there's a nerve right here. We have to stick a needle in and, and, and hit it. And they bring out a needle that's like this long. And you just stick it in through my neck. And I'm like, how are you guys going to know when you hit it? <laughs> They're like, oh, you'll know. <laughs> I was just like, ah! Like, dude, I'm telling you, it felt like it was just like somebody was electrifying my arm and like stabbing me with needles all over it. Now, <clears throat> the nails of the Romans, if you ever get to Rome, you can see one of the nails that was preserved from the crucifixion. The nail is actually like this. It has like a, a tip, right? And then it comes down like this, and it's blunt. Okay? It is not pointed. It's blunt. Why is it blunt? <clears throat> the Romans didn't, remember, the Romans want you to die. How do you die on the cross? Asphyxiation. You, 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 you drown, basically, in yourself. You, you can't breathe. So but they want you to die that way, because that's the worst way. Well, if they put a, a spike, a pierced nail through here, there are also arteries, correct? Right here? If you hit an artery, guess what? They bleed out real quick. But if you have a blunt nail, imagine, first of all, the pain of it going through your skin because it's not pointed. And what it does is it doesn't pierce the artery or the vein. It just pushes, moves it around so they don't pierce through it. And it jacks that nerve. I mean, you guys, it is, we are not just talking about, like, when we think about, this is why the saints say meditate on the passion got to know the intensity of the pain that he, and here's the thing, once he's got the nail inside of him, 
right? On both arms. How do you stay alive on a cross? Does anybody know this? You have to pull yourself up. Now remember, so when you're like this, this is when you can't breathe, right? And you begin to asphyxiate. So, you know, we have a natural instinct to survive. So what you do is you push up. So you, you grab the nails, right? Or you use the, the anchors to pull yourself up. And you have to push down on your feet that have nails in them too. And as this is going on, as he's trying to pull himself up, guess what's on his back? Just rags of flesh that rub against the wood of the cross as he tries to pull himself up to breathe. The nails in the feet, okay? The nails in the feet were, were not used to support the body, but were there just to add extra pain. So when you tried to step to get up, they would add extra pain. The only way to breathe on the cross was to push yourself up, putting all the weight on your feet, but the pain would have been almost unbearable. Imagine putting a nail through both feet and then standing on it with all your weight for three hours. You asked why is he saved, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> Do you remember I said, what, what's the worst type of suffering? Not feeling God. Emotional, psychological. So the depth that Jesus Christ had to go to in order to experience everything that humans experience, he had to experience complete absence of all feeling, of all knowledge, of all everything. And he had to do it in the midst of excruciating physical pain. And so that final cry is our victory cry. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now, now, I've experienced everything. And it's right after that that he says, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's important to remember one last thing, you guys. It's important to remember. <clears throat> Scott Hahn talks about this. There's four cups of wine that you drink, okay, in, in the Jewish Passover meal. You always drink all four to complete the meal. And it says in the scripture, it alludes to the fact that after the third cup, they sang songs. It's the only time Jesus sang that's recorded. It's kind of cool. And then it says they left. Now for the apostles, this would have made no sense. Because remember, they were Jews. They would have been like, as Jesus, like, let's go. We're going to the garden. And they've been like, what's going on? Like, we, we didn't finish the Passover meal. We didn't drink the fourth cup. Where is the fourth cup drank? On the cross. Remember it says, Jesus says, I thirst. And they reach up to him, wine. And he tastes the wine. And after he tastes it, he says, it is finished. And he dies. What is finished? Salvation, redemption, the power to communicate the Eucharist, the final Passover is finished. And now humanity can rejoice. I'll leave you with this. It's from the reproaches that we sing on Good Friday. It's the only day that we don't celebrate Mass, uh, remembering the Lord's death. Reproaches, we sing this as we come forward. Those of you that aren't Catholic, we come forward and we reverence the cross. You can either bow or genuflect or kiss the cross. Remember Jesus' suffering and death. 
while we do that, the reproaches are sung. It says this. My people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. I gave you a royal scepter, but you gave me a crown of thorns. I raised you up in power, but you hung me on a cross. What more could I have done for you that I didn't do? Answer me. You guys, the whole point of God coming and becoming man was to show us that he wanted to come down the mountain, that he wanted to be with us, that he wanted to teach us the truth of what it means to be human. And even if you don't like what he teaches and you think it's full of garbage and it's crap and it's too hard and it's too many rules and it's too difficult, believe his works. <coughs> he went through all that for you. All of it. And what have you done for him? Have you just simply honored him? Do you talk to him? His sole desire is to be with you. And we go and chase the dumbest stuff and put it in place of him. And we don't even think about him. There's this great little story, it's or a movie. It's a short, short film. If you ever get a chance to watch it, you know, I don't even know where you'd find it, actually. It's called Most, M-O-S-T. And most in Czech means bridge. <clears throat> and the story is. There's this, there's this man, he's a husband and a father, and he's got his little boy. His little boy is like, Daddy, I want to go to work with you today. And he's like, no, you can't go to work with me today. He's like, I got to go on my own. He's like, no, he's like, I can just fish because there's a little, there's a lake right there, a, a river. He's like, I'll just fish where you work, and I can, I can see you, and you can see me, and we can hang out all day, and we can eat lunch together. And he's like, all right. He's like, let's go. So he like takes his kid and shows him walking down the railroad tracks, holding hands. They got their lunch buckets. And then they get to work, and what he does for a work is he operates a, a drawbridge. And so when, the, when the, the boats come through, he hits the lever, and the lever opens up. Boat goes through, and then when the trains come, he has to put it back down so the trains can go across. So the boat comes through, okay, and, uh, and, and he lifts the thing up. And then he goes, and he's talking with his buddy, and the train is ahead of schedule. And the little boy's like, Daddy, Daddy, because he can't get up to where, the, where his dad is up in the tower. And he's like, the train's coming, the train's coming. And the father's just, you know, totally distracted. And all of a sudden, the little boy's like, I'm going to take care of it. So he runs up, and he goes, and he's reaching down to pull the manual switch to override it so the, the, the bridge will go down. And as he's reaching for it, he falls. And he falls into the gears of the, of the big bridge. <clears throat> And the, all of a sudden, right as, right as he's reaching down, the father looks out and he's like, no. And the kid falls in. And he looks up and his kid is down there unconscious in the gears. And he sees the train coming. And he has to make one decision. And he puts down the hatch. And the gears crush the boy. <clears throat> and as he comes out, it's such a touching moment. He's sitting there and he's like bawling. Like he's just like shaking uncontrollably because he can't get across to even see if his boy is still alive. And as he's, he's looking, like the train is, is shooting by. And all these people in the train, it shows him 
Some people are having sex. One girl's shooting up on heroin. Some people are drinking, getting drunk, and the whole time the, f the father's like looking at the train like, he, like nobody's, nobody, nobody even knows what I just did. Nobody even cares. As the train goes by, and he goes over and his boy's dead, and he carries him. And he's, he's just like, I mean, he can't, he just weeps. But as the train goes by, he sees one girl, and this is the girl that's shooting up on heroin. And this girl, like, they make eye contact, and he's, like, looking at her. And then the, the, next, the next scene of the show, <clears throat> he's walking downtown like Prague, you know, and just kind of walking around. He looks over, and he sees the girl. And the girl's sitting there, and she's holding a baby. And here she was pregnant. She cleaned up from heroin. She had her child. And, like, as she, she smiles and she turns in slow motion and walks, and the baby's head is over the top, and it just waves at the guy, you know? And the guy just looks up, and he's like, I mean, it's, if that doesn't capture what God the Father did, I, you know, I was just like, it is such a powerful little show, little movie. That's some stuff you need to ask yourself this week. Read through those scripture passages. Ask yourself who Jesus Christ really is. What does he mean to me? If he is who he says he is, how does that affect my life? Does it change anything? Do I want to change? It's a serious question you've got to ask yourself. That's your homework, man. And the other stuff. <laughs> Read through those. Pray through those. And really start to critically think about these things. Because they should affect your whole life. This should be good news, man. You should be excited. Okay? We'll see you next week. <clears throat>